Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your Lord's Day, our day of our rest from our labors, our day of worship of you. We thank you for this cooler weather, how refreshing it was to step outside this morning, feel the cool air. Father, we, we give you praise, we give you adoration, uh, our triune God. We pray that you would be with us this morning in our study of your word, of, of the Mosaic Covenant, that we would know more of you, of your grace toward us, your people. We pray that uh, you would be with us in uh, how your covenant is revealed to us in your catechisms and uh, the grace revealed to us in the Old Covenant. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I have here in my notes that uh, we left off in Exodus 19 in the actual establishment of the covenant. We looked at a couple different things last week, uh, signs and seals, um, how Passover correlated to the Lord's Supper. So we are looking now at Exodus 19. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn there with me. Um, we're going to look at the actual establishment of the covenant. So at this point in, in the narrative, God has brought the people out of Egypt uh, through some pretty miraculous works, right? He's, he's uh, brought plagues to Egypt. He's parted the Red Sea. Uh, he sent manna from heaven. And now we arrive at chapter 19, a crucial chapter to help set the stage for the Ten Commandments. Uh, this chapter focuses on God's instruction given to Moses to prepare the people for his presence. Okay? So the first thing I want to look at is that Israel arrives at Sinai. Okay? Um, looking beginning at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. So Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai. Uh, it says on the third new moon, so that's about seven weeks after coming out of Egypt, right, where the Lord will reveal his covenant through Moses. And where the rest of the events of Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and parts of Numbers are going to take place, okay? Because uh, they're going to be there for about 11 months. And this location uh, is, is significant because has, God has brought Israel exactly where he said he was going to bring them. Okay? When God visits Moses in the burning bush, he says in Exodus 3 verse 12, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And what is this mountain? What's he referring to? Where is Moses when God says this? Well, he's at Horeb. That would be the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. Okay? So why do people, uh, or I'm sorry, why do you suppose that there is uh, an emphasis on time and location here? Why do we start chapter 19 with these two verses, uh, verses on time and location? Because the giving of the law is what makes the Mosaic Covenant unique. Okay, Robertson points this out in his book as well when he says the Mosaic Covenant maintains, I'm sorry, manifests its distinctiveness as an external summation of the will of God. Okay, God gives his law written with his own hand, right? Uh, and Robertson's right. This is, this is a distinctive characteristic of the Mosaic law. And because of this distinctive principle, people, for some reason, right, they become blind to everything else that moves, Okay, um, when they understand this, this truth, grace just kind of seems to, to go out the window, and it becomes the antagonist of the story in so many ways. 
Um, it gets pitted against the law. And, and again, nothing can be further from the truth, right? We looked at this uh, when we talked about republication. Um, and and this, is, this is something that I, I really want you to remember, right? <clears throat> the Mosaic Covenant is all about bringing to fruition the promises made to Abraham. I, I, I will stand up here and, and denounce republication all day long. If, if you want to talk about that further, uh, great. I'd, I'd be happy to tell you why you're wrong, too. Um, but yes, there's an emphasis being placed here um, on, on the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of the law. But this in no way nullifies grace. Okay? In fact, we see that clearly in the next few verses. Let's look at that together. Um, we see grace apart from the law. Look at verses 3 through 4. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have, been, or have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now pay particular attention to verse 4 there. Okay? Because here we see God reminding the people of several distinctive things, several important things. Number one, the covenant up to this point has been accomplished not only by God's providence but through His omnipotence. Okay? He tells Israel, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. It was divine judgment. Okay? Believe it or not, this wasn't actually the first time that I've used plagues to protect my people. Right? Go ask Abraham and Sarah. <clears throat> you are my people, and it has always been my plan to demonstrate my power in saving you. But not just save you. Right? He says how I bore you on eagles' wings. What amazing imagery we have here. I, 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 when I read this, I, I, you know me, I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd, right? I can't help but think of Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam are saved by the eagles in, in uh, The Return of the King. They've just destroyed the ring at, at Mount Doom, right? And it's, it's collapsing all around them. Lava's gushing out of the mountain like a bad wound, right? And just when they think they're done, right? All hope is lost. Gandalf arrives with the eagles, and they deliver Sam and Frodo to safety. With, with ease, with majesty and, and grace, they come in, right? Frodo and Sam would have died without their aid. And just like Frodo and Sam, Israel is delivered by God, who ushers them to safety with ease, with majesty, and with grace. With ease, God appears as a pillar of fire to block the Egyptians while Israel runs. But water impedes their path, right? God says, no problem. I'll move the water. Eventually, Israel gets hungry. God says, no problem. I'll make it rain bread from heaven. All of this he does with no effort, for nothing is too hard for Israel's God. The one who made all things, right? He delivers Israel with power and the majesty of a king. <clears throat> Could Israel do anything to help? No, of course not, right? This is why God reminds them of this. It's all of his grace, all of his mercy. But why? Why does God do this? Well, it's always the same answer, right? God tells Israel at the end of verse 4, right, that I brought you to myself. There's an emphasis on the, the divine drawing here. Okay, it's interesting when you read 
Moses' interaction with Pharaoh, he says, we have to go and worship God. Right? But when they get to the mountain, God says, no, I'm the one who brought you here. Okay? We didn't do anything. I did everything. Okay? We're reminded with this language that these covenants are all about God calling a people to himself. Right? Saving a people for himself. This reminds us that God's covenant relationship with Israel is prior to and essential for their living as his people. Don't, don't miss that. Okay? This is the redemptive prologue of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? In this verse, God is saying, I'm, I'm making a covenant with you, and like every other covenant, I set the conditions. Okay? You did not earn this. You did not deserve your redemption. This, this verse is meant to teach us the redemptive grace of the Mosaic Law. Okay? The law is, is, is framed in grace. Okay? And we're reminded of this every time we read the Ten Commandments on the Lord's Day. Right? Look at, skip over real quick. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is saying the exact same thing in this verse. Right? He starts with grace, and then he gives us the law. When we get to the, the question on the preface of the Ten Commandments, in like five years, we'll, we'll talk about this, okay? But I, I, I love how the Catechism describes the preface to the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's a long answer, so I'll only read a portion of it. It says, And that he is God in covenant, as with Israel of old, so with all his people, who, as he brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, so he delivereth us from our spiritual thraldom. Spiritual thraldom. Man, what a word. You can expect me to start using that more often, by the way. Um, so while it is true that God did not deliver us out of Egypt, physically, right? He does deliver us from our sin. Or as Paul says, our, our spiritual bondage, right? We're in bondage. We're slaves to sin. By the way, do I hear a motion on the floor to use spiritual thraldom in our worship service? Yes. Second and thank you. Right. So I, we're going to use that when we read the Ten Commandments in worship. Okay, in all seriousness, though, be thinking about this as you, as you read, as we read the Ten Commandments in worship, right? When we, we do our reading of the law, it's always been of grace, right? God doesn't say, keep the commandments and I'll bring you out of Egypt. Keep the commandments and I'll, and I'll bring you out of sin. No, nothing could be further from the truth. It doesn't work that way. That's never how it's been done. The Mosaic Covenant is in no way a works-based righteousness system. You do not work to earn God's favor. It's already been given. Rather, we see you've, you've been saved. Now go live accordingly. Okay? Go live in accordance, accordance with covenant faithfulness to your God. Redemption has been entirely performed by God before the law is ever given. Robertson, he summarizes this point well in his book. He says, the covenant of law, coming 400 years after promise, could not possibly disannul the previous covenant. And he's referring to uh, Galatians 3.17 when he talks about that. Now, let's take a look at the covenantal conditions. Now the foundation of grace has been laid. Okay? Okay. God moves into Israel's covenant responsibilities. 
Look down at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, a couple of things we need to address in this verse. Number one, what do we do with this if-then language in verse 5? If you do this, then I'll do this. <clears throat> maybe, our, maybe our dispensational and republication friends were right all along. Maybe I just didn't read far enough in Exodus. No. Here's what we need to understand. We have already established salvation by grace in verse 4. Okay? So the only way this could be affirming, affirming covenant of works language is if Scripture contradicted itself. Okay? Now, knowing that to be false... Let's move on to the next thing, okay? As we've established multiple times, every covenant is conditional, okay? Remember, in the Abrahamic covenant, the language was as for me, now for you, okay? This, this is the as for you language in the Mosaic covenant, okay? Both parties have responsibilities, okay? <clears throat> Here's the other thing we need to understand. God's commands are always blessings, Okay? Moses is not telling Israel here, if you keep my covenant, then I will make you these three things, right? My treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's not what he's saying. Rather, Moses is saying, keep the law and you will be what you were always meant to be. Obedience is the goal of salvation. And this covenant, it's, it's not the means of it, Okay? Let me say that one more time. Obedience is the goal of salvation in this covenant. It's not the means of it. Okay? One, one pastor put it this way. Holiness is the result of grace, not the cause of it. Holiness is the result of grace, not the cause of it. I love that. We saw this in Genesis 1. We saw it again with Abraham in Genesis 12. This command is a blessing, and the enjoyment of the blessing is in the fulfillment of the command. Okay? You see, God shows Israel grace so that they will be what they were always supposed to be, holy. Right? And as they partake of this blessing, as they keep the covenant, they are, number one, the king's special treasure, his, his special possession, right? a thing that, 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 that the king sets aside, reserved only for himself, a kingdom of priests, the second thing. Now, a special note on, on this one, and I could wax eloquently about this for a while, but let me try to keep this one short and sweet. This is not just referring to the Aaronic priesthood. Okay, Moses is speaking to what Israel's life should represent to all the nations. Okay, by keeping the covenant, Israel will now set themselves apart and, more importantly, be a blessing of the Lord to the nations. Okay, interesting. Does that sound familiar? Where do we remember that from? Okay. It should. The Abrahamic covenant, right? God tells Abraham, go, be a blessing. Now, the whole nation of Israel is a kingdom of priests designed to mediate God's presence and be a blessing. Interesting. Number three, they're to be, they're to be a holy nation. They're to be set apart as God's people. They're chosen for holiness. But guess what? These three things don't just apply to the nation. 
of Israel, as believers, we receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And in turn, Jesus makes ready his bride, making her beautiful and holy, a thing reserved only for the king. There's language of that in Ephesians 5, 2 Corinthians 11. It's all over scripture, but listen to Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God has granted us through his spirit the power to keep the law, okay, that we may be bright and pure at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we may be blessed in our keeping of the law. If you, have your, if you have your Bibles, flip over real quick to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I want you to see the, the connection here. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you too have been called, elected, like Israel, by God's grace. For those who believe in Christ, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Israel at Mount Sinai only had something to like what we have now. We experience it in a more excellent way. Because each of us, consecrated in Christ, are members in his kingdom and partakers of his priesthood. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, this is true of us. Like Abraham and Israel before us, we too are a blessing to the nations. As Christians, we are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who summoned us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There is a priesthood of all believers. Okay? And it traces all the way back to Abraham. And to take this one step further, if Peter is applying this text to us, this is further proof that the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of grace. Okay? This is not about working our way to God's favor. Now, flip back over to Exodus 19. <laughs> I know it's a lot of flipping, but you see how covenant theology brings everything together, right? It's not just a bunch of random covenants in the Bible. It connects all of Scripture together. The next thing we need to look at is the covenantal agreement, okay? Uh, let me have a little bit of reading to do here. <clears throat> Starting in verse 7. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, 
that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Okay, so in this passage, we have the formal agreement of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the, the detailed requirements of the covenant will come in chapters 20 through 24. But the people's response in verse 8 confirms their agreement that they're going to enter into the covenant with God. Okay, both parties at this point have formally entered and confirmed their respective roles in this covenant, this, this bond in blood sovereignly administered, right? Now, with the inauguration of this covenant, we need to remember a couple of things. Um, as, as some might think, obedience is not the Old Testament means of earning salvation, okay? No, there's, there's faith, always faith in these covenants. Now, we do need to recognize that obedience is being heavily stressed here, okay? Why? It's not because we have a, a faith plus works equals salvation equation or formula going on here, okay? We don't, we don't have another instrument of justification, not at all. Rather, um, I, I like a quote here from Lincoln Duncan. He said, God is about to begin a grand multi-generational lesson in the doctrine of sin, Okay? And you, can understand, you can't understand sin until you understand the demands of holiness. I think that's well said. And how do we know this is true? Well, because Israel fails to keep the covenant over and over and over, right? Yet God remains faithful. That tells you that covenant faithfulness is not through obedience. I mean, before they leave, even leave the mountain, Israel fails in some pretty amazing ways, right? With idolatry through the golden calf in chapter 32. But God remains faithful. He doesn't, he, he's not like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to swap them out for another people, right? No, he doesn't do that. Okay, very good. Now, before we go any further, I want to discuss one last topic. And really, this could be discussed anywhere, but um, this is where I decided to put it. Um, because of the work that Moses is doing right now for the people, and the fact that Moses is a type of Christ. Okay. Now, as we look at our Exodus text, what's the first thing Moses does after he speaks to God? Well, in true Presbyterian fashion, Moses calls a session meeting. Uh, he gets all the elders together and he tells them everything God said. Uh, and this is then relayed to the people. Now, I want you to take notice, just briefly of the hierarchy and submission that's going on here, right? We have God, mediator, elder, people. All the information flows respective of that order, right? The word of God is delivered down in that order. All the promises, blessings, grace, and covenant requirements go down, and the people's response goes back up through Moses. God has established this order for a reason, because the people need a mediator. And this becomes abundantly clear when Israel sins. Flip over to Exodus 32. Um, we're going to start in verse 9. Verse 9. So at this point, uh, the golden calf has been created. The people have begun to worship it as God. Okay? The Lord is, shall we say, less than pleased. Um, let's look at, we're going to start verse 9 to see uh, God's response to Moses about what's going on here. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, here's a question. Why does God tell Moses in verse 10 to go away so he can consume the people? Hmm. Well, number one, because the people have sinned, right? But more specifically, because Moses is the mediator. Okay, This is showing us that we need a mediator between God and, a, and sinful man. Our sin really is that bad. But Moses is not the mediator that mankind needs. Now, to Moses' credit, he does a fair job. What does he say? Well, his response is in verses 11 through 14. In verse 11, he reminds God the most important thing, right? These are your people, the people that you delivered out of Egypt. In verse 12, he says, don't, don't satisfy the Egyptians, right? Because they're going to say that this, this powerful God just brought them out of here just to kill them, Right? Then in verse 13, Moses quotes the promises of God back to him by means of the Abrahamic covenant. We're reminded yet again that this is a covenant of grace. Verses 11 through 14 are very important because they highlight the fact that we need a mediator, one who will regularly intercede on behalf of our sin. In fact, verse 32, uh, Moses offers his own life to atone for the people. But God said, no. Why? Because despite Moses' noble intention, he was not the sacrifice the people needed. His sacrifice was sin-stained and imperfect. Jesus Christ is the only perfect mediator between God and man. In serving as mediator, Moses serves as a type of Christ. He points us forward to the one who would come and fulfill that office and role perfectly. Uh, if you'd like, you can flip over to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to, to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So verse 14 says, how much more? Right? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If bulls 
could be used to atone for sin. Well, how much more the spotless Lamb of God? Right? We have Old Testament sacrifices that did not affect the conscience, right, in the very first covenant, which, by the way, is when it says the first covenant, it's always referencing the Mosaic covenant. Okay? <clears throat> then in the new covenant, we have Christ who purifies our innermost being. Okay? Everything about this covenant is better to include the mediator, Jesus Christ. Moses was an imperfect mediator. Jesus is perfect. Because unlike Moses, he is the priest who successfully offers himself in sacrifice. He's the one who guarantees an eternal inheritance. He redeems God's people from their transgressions. He secures everlasting salvation. Israel needed Moses to speak with God. You don't. The veil has been torn down, and now you have unfettered access to the throne room of God. You can go to him anytime. Very good. Now, this brings us to our next major section of the covenant, the giving of the law. Uh, flip back over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Now, remember, this law is given after the people are saved from slavery. Probably said that once or twice, right? Um, we touched on that point earlier in verse 2 regarding the prologue. It reminds God's people, number one, that he is God, and number two, that they are in this covenant by grace alone. Covenant by grace alone, right? Now, my focus on chapter 20 is not going to be the Ten Commandments itself. We'll get to them in due course um, in the catechism study. Rather, what I want us to notice um, is a couple distinctives that the law reveals. Number one, the Abrahamic covenant focuses on God's promises, while the Mosaic covenant focuses on obedience. Okay, now I mentioned this before, and I want to expand on it just, just briefly. <clears throat> With the giving of the law in the Mosaic covenant, we see a couple of things. Um, number one, we see a more robust picture of God and his holiness and his truth and his justice. Secondly, we receive a greater standard for holiness. With the giving of the law, this covenant advances our revelation of morality, our own sin nature. Hey, it has completely transformed everything we knew about sin in light of a holy God. But more specifically, it's building upon something the previous patriarchs didn't have. Okay? The focus for hundreds of years has been on God's promise to preserve his people. Now, those people are called to live in accordance with those promises. Okay? Secondly, the law is the love of God made practical. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Now, this isn't anything mushy. Let me flesh this out for you. <clears throat> I think it's helpful in this case to uh, flip over to our other text that gives us the Ten Commandments, which is, anybody remember? It's the other text that gives us the Ten Commandments? Deuteronomy 5. Thank you. Very good. Somebody knew it. Flip over there. Now, why do we need two passages with the law? Why, why, well, we got one. Why do we need two, Right? Is it because Israel's forgetful and needs to be reminded again? Well, yes, actually. Um, and so do we. But it's a little more specific than that. Our focus 
uh, is not going to be in Deuteronomy 5. It's actually going to be in Deuteronomy 6. Most of you probably know where I'm going with this. Look at verse 4. Deuteronomy 6. Actually, I need to get there. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So let's start with... Verse 4, this is the great Shema of Israel, right? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Okay, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's no exaggeration to call this the thesis statement of the Old Testament. Okay? Now, there's an important theological principle that we need to take away from this. This is a statement of exclusivity. It's not talking about the unity within God. We say that again. This is a statement of exclusivity. It's not talking about the unity in God. What do I mean by that? There's a lot of false gods out there. Okay? But there's only one true Elohim, one true God. And his name is Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. Okay? And this is what Israel needed to be reminded of at this point in Scripture. And us too, right? There is no other God like our God, Yahweh, he alone is God. Because for the Israelites, they're about to encounter polytheism as they go into Canaan. Okay? But now, they've been given the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. They've been given the law of God in the Mosaic Covenant. And now they know who the one true God is. Okay? With this firmly planted in their hearts, they're being reminded of a great truth. And so are we. Right? You don't have to look very far in this world, and sometimes in our own lives, unfortunately, right, to see false gods rear their ugly heads. We are to reject them for the God who has shown us immeasurable grace. Now, verse 5 and following reminds us of the other important principle that we need to take away from this. There's an ex- uh, expectation that we shall love God with all our heart and soul and might. This teaching is repeated specifically and in principle throughout Scripture. In fact, we're told by Christ, right? This is the great and first commandment. The idea here is that we are to love God with every fiber of our being, right? We love because he first loved us. And it's no coincidence that the commandments are repeated in chapter 5, and then we get this great piece of text in Deuteronomy 6. You see, our culture thinks of the commandments as being antithetical to love. It's not true. Because the culture has turned love into a sexual construct or, or a mere sentimentalism. Okay? These commandments are the love of God made practical. They demonstrate how we are to love God with our heart, soul, and might. It's the third function of the law. Right? The love of God here is very practical. And it parallels the idea of parents to children, right? 
Moses is telling Israel here, you have been adopted into God's family. The love of God gives you how to engage that. You have to respond to that love. Sinai is not the antithesis to love or a rival to love, but the love of God made practical. It carries over to every other facet of our lives. In fact, the love, that love is so great, Israel, that you need to teach it to your children. It should be passed down to every generation. And I would say a hearty amen for that for us today, right? You see, people think the law oppressive. Now, in, in one sense, sure, because you can't earn your favor to God through the law, right? But the law is not oppressive. If we keep it in faith in light of God's love, we move from being a slave to sin to a slave to God. And only then are we truly free because we're living as we were always created to be. Now, last thing I want to mention regarding the law is the people's reaction. Flip back over to Exodus chapter 20. Now, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I do want to point out a couple of things. Um, Get back there, too. Beginning in verse uh, 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And uh, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. When God speaks to the people, they are afraid. They are terrified. Well, they're not wrong. The law is delivered by God in a dreadful manner to demonstrate his awesome majesty, his power, his glory. Remember, God is appearing before them in a thick cloud of thunder, so loud that it shakes the mountain, right? The last time Israel saw something like this, Egypt was getting pelted with plague hail, okay? Moses says, don't be afraid. Rather, have in your mind a reverence for God's majesty, a dread of his displeasure, and an obedient regard for his sovereignty. This will quicken you to what Luther calls a a filial fear of the Lord, a desire to please him out of a child's love for his father, rather than being afraid of a a harsh slave master. Right? When God speaks, what do the people do? They're afraid, and then they do what? They pull away. In light of who God is and the law just given, they are aware of their guilt and their sin before a holy God. And they're afraid of his wrath. This, by the way, is the the first function of the law, right? That it might act as a mirror and reveal to us our sin. Israel does not want to be so close 
to such a holy and righteous, righteous God. Twice, twice it says that they stood far off. But their fear and their pulling away reveals something Israel uh, got right, that they recognized their need for a mediator. They request Moses to speak to God on their behalf. When God speaks directly to man, it is terrifying. Matthew Henry, a very notable commentator, he says, the request by Israel required, quote, infinite wisdom. Because hearing God doesn't help them. Quite the opposite. It, it scares them. And they, they still end up committing adultery with the golden calf. Matthew Henry says this, Let us therefore rest satisfied with the instructions given us by the scriptures and the ministry. For if we believe not them, neither should we be persuaded, though God should speak to us in thunder and lightning as he did from Mount Sinai. Here that matter was determined. So you get what he's saying there. We have the scriptures and the preached word through our minister, right? Even if God spoke to us himself, we still wouldn't get it through our thick heads. He did it with Israel, and what they do, they turn around and worship a golden calf. It would terrify us, right? Because it, it, people, people say this all the time, right? Well, God, God spoke to me. No, he didn't, okay? Because if he did, you would need a new pair of drawers, okay? No. Before we discussed how Moses as a mediator was a type of Christ, okay? But in this portion of the covenant, we see the need for Moses to function in that role. Right? He's the one who, as verse 27, draws near to God. And he does so on behalf of the people. Now, our last topic uh, before we close out this covenant is sacrifices. Um, here, the kids are getting a little restless without mom and dad, so this is, this is probably a good place to stop. Um, does anyone have any questions before we close out? Sir. Earlier you made mention that Israel accepted the terms of the covenant, right? Did they, did they have a choice, really? Not, not particularly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any more questions? All right, let me close this in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you how you have demonstrated your love for us, your grace for us, how you have called us as a people to yourself and draw us near to you. We pray that you would be with us in our fellowship this morning and this afternoon and in our worship of you this day. We thank you for your Lord's day, how we can worship you in spirit and in truth and do so freely. Pray that you would be with our pastor as he preaches your word faithfully and that you would Make our hearts open and receptive to your word. Pray all these things in the name of our Lord.